1: Hey, glad you could join us today. It's a fine day to revel in wrong think. I got some pretty weighty stuff that I'm going to share with you as well. So I hope you brought your thinking cap. We're going to talk about uh, whether colleges and employers can legally require you to get the COVID vaccine. We're also going to talk a little bit about the soaring amount of government spending. It's It's almost incomprehensible. But uh, there are some lessons from history, at least for those who are paying attention. We'll talk about that just a little bit from now. Also, when politicians are looking to support their spending habits, one of the things they like to do is think about how to raise taxes. Interestingly enough, there's a phrase that comes up every time the proposal is made to raise taxes. Can you guess what it is? If you thought fair share, that's exactly <laughs> what we're talking about. Got a great article here from the hosts of Words and Numbers podcast. Uh, that's James R. Harrigan as well as Anthony Davies. And they explain how when politicians say fair tax, what they mean is more tax. Also, I'm sure you've been hearing a little bit about blockchain. Maybe uh, maybe you're schooled on this. Maybe you could be teaching me. Um, I'm a noob. I don't know that much about it. But I understand that, uh, look... Our our society is becoming more digital by the minute. And blockchain and the future of everything is something we should all be willing to at least take an informed peek at, if not to delve into, you know, at a deeper level. Oh, and there's one other question that uh, we're going to ask and explore in the course of this hour of the show. And that is, what do humans owe each other? I mean, there's no There's no shortage of people who are willing to make a claim on your life, your labor, your money. What do you really owe other people? Got a great take from Kent McManigal. As always, he has a very solid thought on debts that you don't actually owe. So, again, welcome to the show brought to you by Monticello College, Pure Light, HSLMO.com. We are very happy to have these sponsors. I have a link to each of them in the show notes at thebrianhide.show.com. Also links to each of the articles that I'll be sharing with you in this hour of the show. Let's talk about the COVID vaccine. This is becoming a pretty big deal. In the sense that, you know, I mean, some people are like, hey, I'm just glad that it's available. I'm going to get it. And and that's fine. I'm not going to sit here and persuade you that, uh, well, you really shouldn't, but... The problem is there are a lot of people who, uh, like, uh, like with masks, think if it's a good idea, well, it's uh, something that ought to be mandatory. And this is where I start to have a little bit of a problem. And the big concern right now is some colleges and employers are actually mandating COVID vaccines. States are actually proposing laws in response to prohibit vaccine mandates. And it leaves uh, those of us who are part of the control group, that would be the unvaccinated, to wonder where we stand. This is an article from Children's Health Defense written by Megan Redshaw, and she says a slew of colleges and universities are embracing COVID vaccine mandates, telling students if they want to attend classes on campus, they'll need to be vaccinated. Meanwhile, a look at job postings across the country reveals many employers are requiring job candidates to either get vaccinated or promise to get vaccinated within 30 days of being hired. She says whether you're a job hunter or a college student, you may soon face the prospect that your future plans could hinge on your willingness to get the COVID vaccine. But here's the question. Can colleges and employers legally require it? And as you might have guessed, the answer is complicated. More than 100 colleges across the country will require students to receive COVID vaccines in order to attend in-person classes this fall though most will allow for medical and religious exemptions. But the list of colleges that require the vaccine, I mean, these are recognizable names. Stanford, Rutgers, University of Notre Dame, also uh, Duke University, Georgetown University, Johns Hopkins, and Yale. Other colleges and universities have said, well, we'll require athletes, or at least those who live on campus, to get the shot. This is according to the New York Times. Now, many schools, including Boston College, Morehouse College in Georgia, University of California and California State University systems, as well as George Washington University, have similar requirements for employees before they'll be allowed to return to in-person teaching. Colorado's major public universities announced on Wednesday they will require students, faculty, and staff to get COVID vaccinations before beginning the fall semester. Now that mandate means more than 170,000 students, that's most of the state's college students, will be required to get vaccinated, according to enrollment data from the Colorado Department of Higher Education. Now, the article here says, although private colleges make up the bulk of schools with vaccine mandates, some public universities have also moved to require COVID vaccination. Students and employees at the University System of Maryland will be required to get vaccinated. That's according to Chancellor J.A. Perman, who is most concerned about the U.K. virus variant, which he described in his announcement last week as more contagious. Perman said, that's what we're preparing for. More infectious, more harmful variants that we think could be circulating on our campuses come fall. Now, the article goes on to point out that Rutgers University announced back in March, it would require all students to be vaccinated in order to enroll for the fall 2021 semester. And the announcement prompted Children's Health Defense, or CHD, chairman Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to remind university officials that federal law prohibits mandating products approved under the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Emergency Youth Authorization. In a letter to Rutgers president Jonathan Holloway, Kennedy, who also serves as chief legal counsel for CHD, wrote, Federal law requires that the person to whom an EUA vaccine is administered be advised of the option to accept or refuse administration of the product of the consequences, if any, of refusing administration of the product and of the alternatives to the product that are available and of their benefits and risks, End quote. Now they go on to say the right of refusal, <clears throat> excuse me, this right of refusal, stems from the fact that EUA products are, by definition, experimental, and forced participation in a medical experiment could result in injury. Under the Nuremberg Code, no one may be coerced to participate in a medical experiment. Consent of the individual is absolutely essential. Now, according to uh, I. Glenn Cohen, expert on medical ethics and professor at Harvard Law School, there is no federal guidance for colleges and universities mandating COVID vaccination, but there is a well-established practice of universities mandating students receive specific vaccines as a condition of attendance, with exemptions difficult to obtain. Cohen pointed to a recent case where the California trial court <clears throat> upheld an influenza vaccine mandate by the University of California, that's a public university, and drew the analogy to K-12 public school mandates. Public universities are on even surer footing with COVID vaccination requirements because there's a greater public health risk with COVID, Cohen wrote on the Harvard Law Review blog. Private colleges are not required to grant religious exemptions under federal law, although some states have the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which may be interpreted to require public colleges and universities to provide religious exemptions. However, the article says both public and private universities and colleges are subject to the requirements of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, or its sister statute, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, that require accommodations for students with disabilities, which potentially includes those with medical contraindications to vaccines. There are also arguments surrounding bodily autonomy and the fact that all COVID vaccines currently approved for EUA in the U.S., are experimental vaccines. So Cohen, like Kennedy, pointed to federal law which requires notifying recipients of the option to accept or refuse administration of the product. Okay, that's the schools. What about employers? A recent survey gathered data from more than 1,800 in-house lawyers, human resources professionals, and C-suite executives to analyze plans, strategies, and concerns related to COVID vaccination and their workforces. The results showed fewer than 0.5% of companies mandate COVID vaccination for all employees. 6% plan to mandate it for all workers once vaccines are readily available and or fully approved by the FDA. 3% said they plan to mandate vaccination only for certain workers, such as those in customer-facing roles. Of those surveyed, 43% said they were unsure and still weighing the possibility of mandating vaccination while 12% said they plan to bar unvaccinated employees from certain activities such as travel or interaction with colleagues or customers. So I'm going to hit the pause button here as we go to break but does this affect you? I'm just curious if this is if this is something that you are having to deal with in your either work or possibly with schooling kind of weird to be standing at that crossroads and going, okay, am I okay with this? Do I just go along to get along? Do I assert myself? Am I going to be a second-class citizen if I do? We'll be back in
0: just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Yeah, we're wasting no
1: time getting into the thick of things as we uh, kick off a new week, a new month, and a new adventure of reveling in wrong think. So I'm sharing this article from Megan Redshaw. This is about whether colleges and employers can legally require you to get vaccinated. And the answer, of course, is it's complicated, as most things are once government gets involved. Colleen Connell, the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Illinois, said government and businesses have the power to impose vaccine requirements to protect public health if justified by data. And the right to refuse vaccines on religious grounds is not absolute. Now, if people claiming religious exemptions are preventing society from reaching herd immunity, Connell said then the government has a right to insist on vaccinations. Now, private employers don't have that right as long as they permit religious and public health exemptions. And they don't implement a vaccination program in an arbitrary or discriminatory way. Although, Connell added, hospitals have long required their employees to get annual flu shots. According to Bloomberg Law, employers generally have legal authority to require their employees get vaccinations, so long as they adhere to federal rules or federal laws rather requiring religious and medical accommodations in the workplace the equal employment opportunity commission reaffirmed that authority back in december specifically as it pertains to covid however as the defender reported back in january attorneys mary holland chd president and greg glazer argued that states and employers under federal law can't mandate EUA COVID vaccines. Holland and Glazer wrote, quote, if a vaccine has been issued EUA by the FDA, it is not fully licensed and must be voluntary. A private party, such as an employer, school, or hospital, cannot circumvent the EUA law, which prohibits mandates. Indeed, the EUA law preventing mandates is so explicit there is only one precedent case regarding an attempt to mandate an EUA vaccine. Now, there's more to this, and they talk about uh, some of the different approaches being taken in the various states. I don't know some, of the, you know. some of the approaches may actually be swinging the pendulum a little too hard in the other direction. But if this is something that you are likely to face in your own you know, uh, situation, whether it be for, for work or for school, I guess you better have a pretty clear understanding of uh, where your line in the sand is and, and what your rights are. And right now, it seems like the only thing that is, is providing, you know, some, some traction for those who say, I don't want to be mandated, is the fact that uh, you're dealing with an experimental vaccine. Now, again, my goal here isn't to convince you, therefore, you know, don't ever get the vaccine. It's bad news. I don't know. Maybe it's what you need. But I think you have to be informed, at least as informed as you can be going in. And I think ultimately you have to be the one to weigh the risks versus the benefits and then decide, you know, is it worth whatever risks I'm assuming? Is it worth the the risk not to have the vaccine? But that's a choice that I think each person has to make for themselves. If there is one thing that has just absolutely left my jaw hanging this last few months, well, this last year and a few months, actually, It's how quickly people shed any pretense of, you know, of of acknowledging other people's autonomy when they're afraid, when they're afraid of a particular germ or a particular virus. And yet I'm just going to point out for, for the sake of, you know, perspective, the vast majority of people who actually get COVID survive. 98 plus percent of them survive. Yes, it can be deadly to people within certain risk categories. But generally, most people are going to survive it. So, you know, be alert, but don't just give everything up because of that fear. All right, moving on. Here's something. This puts a little shiver in in my spine every time I think about the amount of government spending that's going on these days. And I'm not an economist, so I can't look at the charts and tell you, oh, yes, well, you know, of course, this hockey stick looker. All I know is when I look at, at a chart of federal spending, historically, we went straight up starting about, what, 13 years ago or thereabouts, about the time the big bailouts started kicking in. And I think, by the way, it wasn't just Obama. You know, this started under the Bush administration and then continued through Obama and through others. But it's It's insane. And it makes you wonder, well, historically, how has that worked out? When when governments spend and their debt goes through the roof, what happens? John Miltimore has an excellent piece from the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And to put it simply, he says the U.S. is in uncharted debt territory. We've never seen this kind of spending and this kind of debt accumulation before. And he says that should worry us. John Miltimore writes, President Biden on Wednesday pitched a new plan to Americans before a joint session of Congress. More spending. Hey, (laughs) what a great idea. This just released uh, the just released one point eight trillion dollar plan presented just weeks after Biden signed a one point nine trillion dollar in covid relief spending into law includes free community college as well as universal preschool for all three and four year olds. Oh, we could do a whole show just on that alone. But back to the article. The New York Times reported Mr. Biden could usher in a new era that fundamentally expands the size and role of the federal government. Yeah, because we really need that right now. John Miltimore asks, how much debt is bearable? Keeping in mind that the announcement comes months after the Congressional Budget Office released a report projecting a $2.3 trillion deficit in 2021, just to put trillion into perspective. That is a million million. Hang on a second. Let me make sure I'm getting that. Yeah, that's a million million. <laughs> when you start dealing with orders of magnitude, I mean, when you start getting into these kinds of numbers, it's hard to comprehend, which is where most of us shut down. But let's plow ahead and see what we can do to make sense of this. Miltimore says Biden's plan will almost certainly make the deficit worse. Though the plan contains various tax increases to fund its programs, the taxes are likely to fall well short of government outlays, according to economists. The laws of economics are more rigid than the laws of the federal government, and these tax hikes are unlikely to yield the windfall Biden expects. That's Joshua Jahani, managing director of Jahani & Associates, in a recent NBC News article. John Miltimore says, as a result, the $28.2 trillion national debt will swell even faster. Worse, when unfunded liabilities are included in the balance sheet, as private companies are legally required to do, the debt exceeds $120 trillion. again with a T. Now, how much risk these obligations present is unclear. There is a school of thought that suggests that these debts pose no serious risk. After all, in theory, a government can roll over its debt indefinitely. However, in a recent article for the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, economist David Andolfato noted that ultimately the government doesn't decide how much debt is bearable. The market does. Andolfato wrote, There is presumably a limit to how much the market is willing or able to absorb in the way of Treasury securities for a given price level or inflation rate and a given structure of interest rates. However, no one really knows how high the debt-to-GDP ratio can get. We can only know once we get there. Okay, that's a little chilling. How far can we push this thing before we break it? I don't know. We'll have to push it till it breaks. Then we'll know. The question is, what happens when it breaks? So this brings up the question, are we approaching a dangerous level of debt? John Miltimore says, Andofato is right that no one really knows the debt tipping point, but it's worth noting that U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio, essentially a country's debt compared to its annual economic output, was 129% at the end of 2020. In other words, the official U.S. debt was nearly a third larger than the entire U.S. economy. Why does that matter? Well, that's considerably higher than Greece's debt-to-GDP ratio in 2010 when it received a bailout from the International Monetary Fund to avoid defaulting on its obligations. Do you remember the drama of Greece and Cyprus and other places? I remember their governments rating people's insurance, or not insurance, their retirement savings accounts, rather. Could something similar be on the horizon for us? I guess
0: we're going to see. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, we're
1: talking about money, money stuff, in particular spending and debt. And it's very interesting as I'm looking at this article by John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. I did not realize that uh, our U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio is higher than Greece's debt-to-GDP ratio was about uh, 11 years ago when they were having major economic problems. Now, Miltimore says the United States is not Greece, of course. Its economic potential is far greater, and it's operating under a currency it controls. But there's no denying that the U.S. is in uncharted territory. He says today, the federal government debt-to-GDP ratio is higher than it was at the conclusion of World War II, back when the nation assembled one of the largest armies the world has ever seen. And perhaps even worse, the government is piling on debt Faster than ever. He says eventually, as Andefato notes, the market may very well decide enough is enough and the demand for treasury securities will dry up. Indeed, this is one likely reason cryptocurrencies are suddenly flourishing. In seemingly the blink of an eye, cryptos have gone from being discussed in the corners of Reddit rooms and university lounges to a market of more than $2 trillion. It's no exaggeration to say cryptos are now mainstream. They're being gobbled up by hedge funds and star athletes signing 10-figure contracts. And it's not hard to see why. The market is hedging. Like rats on a sinking ship, many are eyeing an exit, sensing that the dollar's day may finally be coming to an end as its value is eroded by mass pumping. Are we ignoring history, though? Miltimore says in a popular 2016 article, author Richard Ebling explored how central planners in ancient Rome destroyed the economy. And he says a lot of what Ebling describes, debt, massive spending, inflation, and price controls destroy, it sounds eerily familiar to modern ears. And Ebling naturally explores the age-old riddle, why did Rome fail? Well, for centuries, as any history buff knows, thinkers from Edward Gibbon to Peter Heather and beyond have asked this question. And the answers vary. Some blame barbarians, others immigration. Some claimed Christianity was at fault, while others point to disease or the weakening of the Roman legions. All of these theories are interesting and worthy of examination. But John Miltimore says I found no better, no single better explanation than the one offered by economist Ludwig von Mises, who concluded Rome's decay stemmed from its rejection of individualism and free markets. Mises wrote the marvelous civilization of antiquity perished because it did not adjust its moral code and its legal system to the requirements of the market economy he continued a social order is doomed if the actions which its normal functioning requires are rejected by the standards of morality are declared illegal by the courts by the laws rather of the country and are prosecuted as criminal by the courts and the police the Roman Empire crumbled to dust because it lacked the spirit of classical liberalism and free enterprise. The policy of interventionism and its political corollary, cor- corollary the Führer principle, decomposed the mighty empire as they will by necessity always disintegrate and destroy any social entity. Now, Miltimore says the American president and statesman John Adams once reportedly said there are two ways nations are destroyed. One is by the sword and the others by debt. Now, there is no question debt is a serious problem. Just ask the ancient Romans and the modern Grecians. But, if Mises is correct, the explosion of debt may merely be a symptom of a much larger problem, and that is a collapse of the spirit of liberty and the growth of a system hostile to free enterprise. And he says we should learn from one thing we have that the Romans didn't, which was their ominous example. What a great article. Again, a link to it in the show notes Show notes, rather, at the um, brianhydeshow.com. Well, with all that spending going on, I suppose we, we have some uh, things to think about here in terms of, you know, what are we going to be able to do to pay for this? I'm pretty sure the politicians are, are thinking, uh, well, all we have to do is just raise taxes and this is going to solve all of our problems. I would direct you to a commentary by James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. When politicians say fair tax, they only mean more tax. And here Harrigan and Davies say, Politicians never seem to have much trouble telling us they want to raise taxes. It seems to come as naturally to them as breathing does to the rest of us. They do their level best to keep the spotlight on the rich, of course, who they say must pay their fair share. But what do politicians hardly ever say? And the answer is they hardly ever say who the rich are. And when they do, they usually point to multi-billionaires, while meaning people with considerably less. Oh, what do they also never say? They never say what a fair share is. It really just means more. Huh, who would have thought? So this, this leaves a problem for the class warfare class because it is these same rich people who fund their political campaigns. And as if that weren't bad enough, most congressmen and senators are rich themselves. The two who yell the loudest about taxing the rich, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are worth 2.5 million and 12 million respectively. What are the odds that these two and all their cronies in Congress would bite the hands that feed them? What are the odds they would bite their own hands? We do well to remember 1988, George H.W. Bush, in accepting the Republican nomination for the presidency, made his point perfectly clear. People would pressure him to raise taxes, but when that happened, he would say, he claimed, read my lips, no new taxes. All things considered, that's a pretty easy promise to make, but it's a much harder promise to keep. And it wasn't long before Bush broke his promise, but in doing so, he only went after the rich Signing into law a 10% luxury tax on things rich people buy. Yachts, private planes, and expensive jewelry. Now that tax was supposed to raise more than $30 in additional revenue. But it didn't raise much of anything. The rich simply went elsewhere to purchase their luxuries. Entrepreneurs and the working class paid, and they paid dearly, as the tax destroyed almost 10,000 jobs in the boating, aircraft, and jewelry industries. Meanwhile, foreign companies in these industries made out like bandits. And that's the difference between the, re- the rhetoric and the reality of taxation. Now, Harrigan and Davies, say, and, uh, and Davies say that we can still dig deeper into tax reality through the Congressional Bucks, uh, Budget Office, or CBO, which asks Americans how much they earn and how much they pay in federal taxes. And breaking down those answers by income level provides some valuable insight into who is and who isn't paying their fair share. Now, to sidestep technical problems like write-offs and deductions, wages versus interest, income rather, and payroll versus capital gains taxes, the Congressional Budget Office lumps together into a single pile all of the federal taxes people actually pay, income taxes, net of the earned income tax credit, uh, payroll taxes, corporate taxes, including capital gains taxes, and excise taxes. Into another pile, the CBO places the market income people earn from all sources, wages, salaries, employer-paid benefits, interest income, business income, capital gains, uh, rental income, deferred income, other sources of non-governmental income. The Congressional Budget Office then divides the first number by the second to get people's average effective tax rates. The average effective tax rate is the fraction of people's total incomes that they actually pay to the IRS. Now, here's what's interesting. The CBO's latest numbers don't tell us what is fair, but they do tell us who is paying what. And while politicians avoid this the way vampires avoid garlic, knowing what people actually pay is the first thing we need to determine in any discussion of what's fair. In 2017, the last year for which data is available, average household income among the top 1% was $2 million. Average household income among the middle 20% was $61,700 and among the bottom 20% it was $15,900. After the various accounting and legal gymnastics one goes through to reduce one's tax burden, the average household among the top 1% paid around 32% of that 2 million in federal taxes. The average middle-income household paid 17%, the average household among the bottom paid 20%, or bottom 20% rather, paid less than 2%. In other words, the average 1%er household earned about 125 times what the average bottom 20% or household earned, but paid over 2,000 times the federal taxes. And James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies say this isn't a new phenomenon. The rich have been paying the lion's share of federal taxes for decades. In fact, since the 1980s, the mid-80s, the average effective tax rate paid by the top 1% has remained about the same, while the rate for the bottom 20% has steadily declined. Interesting, but that isn't the entire story because while the federal government takes what the well it takes with one hand, it gives with the other transfers are cash payments and in kind services the government gives to people means tested transfers distributed on the basis of need typically fall as a household's income rises. Now we got to take a quick break, but we're going to come back to this in just a few moments. Again, the question here is, so what's your fair share? Politicians are pretty keen to talk about everybody needs to pay their fair share when it comes to taxes. But as uh, James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies are outlining here, they're showing that call for, for fair is really just a call for more taxes. So let's not be hoodwinked. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder, you can
1: access all of the various articles that I have referenced in this hour of the show. In the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com I put up show notes each day that I do the program. And uh, there are a few annotations of my own, but mostly you'll find the links to the various commentators and, re- <clears throat> excuse me, researchers who are, are supplying this content. Great article here from uh, Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan, hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast. And they're talking about how when politicians say fair tax, they only mean more tax. And this is interesting when they talk about how what the federal government takes with one hand, it gives with the other. So when they talk about means-tested transfers, they're talking about things distributed on the basis of needs, need and that typically fall as a household income rises. You qualify for greater benefits um, as your income falls. Does that make sense? Earnings-tested transfers distributed on the basis of earnings typically rise as a household income rises. Now, the government provides means-tested transfers through Medicaid or CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, SNAP, formerly food stamps, temporary assistance for needy families, housing assistance, income assistance, energy assistance, child nutrition programs, and it provides earning-tested transfers in the form of social insurance benefits like Social Security, Medicare benefits, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation. Harrigan and Davies say workers tend to think of social insurance benefits, particularly Social social Security retirement benefits, not as government transfers, but as a return on money they paid into the social insurance system. In fact, the Supreme Court long ago established that Social Security benefits are not a contractual right. That would be Fleming v. Nestor, 1960. And that Social Security taxes paid into the system are like any other government revenue, and not earmarked for Social Security benefits. That case was Helvering v. Davis, 1937. Consequently, they said, in our calculations, we should treat social insurance payroll taxes as any other federal tax, and similarly, social insurance benefits as any other federal transfer. Now, clearly, these transfers are largely things the government does to help lower-income households, but regardless of the intention, the transfers are, in fact, negative taxes. Subtracting transfers households uh, received from the taxes households pay yields net federal taxes paid. So the average household among the top 1% paid $620,000 in federal taxes and received $1,300 in transfers on $2 million in market income for an effective net tax rate of 31%. The average middle-income household paid $10,500 and received $16,800 on market income of $61,700 for an effective net tax rate of negative 10%. And the average household among the bottom 20% paid $300 in taxes and received $20,300 in transfers on $15,900 in market income for an effective net tax rate of negative 126%. Kind of interesting when you see the numbers spelling it out there. They say one interested in taxing the rich to give to the poor could argue that this sort of outcome is precisely the sort of thing a progressive tax system is supposed to achieve. Putting aside that argument as to whether massive transfers like this are advisable, what is clear is that it's a bit of a stretch to claim that the rich aren't paying their fair share when the bottom 60% of households aren't paying anything at all. Accounting for both federal taxes and federal transfers on average, only the top 40% of households are net payers into the federal tax and transfer system. This is why most discussions about tax cuts end with the charge that the side proposing tax cuts merely wants tax cuts for the rich. Our system of taxes and transfers is so progressive that almost by definition, every tax cut is a tax cut for the rich because on average, those are the only households that are net payers. What a great explanation. They go on to say, in a democracy, a tax system in which some are net payers and others are net recipients becomes dangerously unstable when the net recipients constitute more than half of all voters. At that point, the majority have an incentive to vote for ever more spending for themselves and ever more taxes on the minority who pay. But none of this is new because it's not about our particular economic or political systems, but about human nature. People always want more in exchange for less. Politicians have merely discovered a way to turn people's desire for more votes for themselves into more votes for themselves, rather. The trick is to tell the voting majority that the rich minority isn't paying its fair share, and that if only the voting majority would cast their votes correctly, fairness can be restored. But notice, they say by never defining fair, politicians can just repeat their tiresome claims election after election. So what exactly is everyone's fair share? Well, that's a hard question. And it's made harder still when people tasked with answering it do everything they can to avoid answering it. Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan say say as long as this continues, calls for the rich to pay their fair share will never end because in light of the numbers, proponents seem not to mean fair at all. They simply mean more. These guys have such a solid take. If you haven't subscribed to their podcast, you really should do so. Again, it's the Words and Numbers podcast. James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies. And there is a link in the show notes to this article. I'm not going to have time to go much into uh, this article on blockchain and uh, the future of everything. But Ethan Yang, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a remarkable article that helps explain some of these concepts. If you're like me and, and still kind of new to it, trying to get your mind around it, this is a really good place to start. Again, you'll find that in the show notes at the show.com. So here's the, the final note I'd like to end this hour on, and it's a question that doesn't get asked often enough, and that is, what do humans owe each other? I mean, you look around, there is no shortage of people eager to make a claim on your life, your labor, and your money. And Kent McManigal has another spot-on, thoughtful take on a debt you don't owe. And he starts with the question, what do humans owe each other? Lots of clashing claims get thrown around, but he says most of them are complete nonsense. You don't automatically owe others housing, medical care, safety, or food. Not without a prior, mutually consensual agreement. Now he says, recently I've seen more and more claims saying, well, we also owe each other respect. But he says there's only one kind of respect you owe others, and it's very specific. You are obligated, you owe it, to respect the natural, equal, and identical human rights of every individual. Not a generalized respect. You can't owe something that hasn't been earned by a consensual agreement or a debt, or by a debt your actions created. You owe it to others not to violate their life, liberty, or property, including trying to prevent them from securing these things for yourself. He says, your primary responsibility is, always has been, and always will be, not to arcate. That's a word that everybody needs to have, by the way, in their vocabulary. And that just simply means trying to control other people through political power. So if your primary responsibility is to not arcate, that's how you show respect that you actually owe to others. You owe it to them not to stand in their way of providing housing, medical care, safety, food, or respect for themselves. But respect for their opinions? Nope. You don't owe them that? Respect based on the color of their skin, their sex, their sexual proclivities, their culture, or their political religious beliefs? Nope. Again. You owe others respect for their human right to be who they are as long as they don't seek to use government violence to impose themselves and their opinions on you. The quickest way to show yourself unworthy of even that level of respect is to try to force others to give you respect or else the state will use violence against them on your behalf. So he says don't be guilted into taking on a debt that isn't yours. You owe what you owe and not a bit more. I don't know why, but this really brought to mind all the all the talk that I hear about, uh, you know, the guilt. Oh, don't you feel guilt for your privilege? You should feel guilt over the privilege that you have in your life. And I not, I not only agree with uh, Kent McManigle, but I agree with my friend Eric Peters, who has said, look, if I have actually done something wrong for which I need to feel guilty, I'll own it and do what I can to make it right. And I, I agree, that is the adult way to handle things, if you actually did something wrong. But this blanket, well, you owe me this guilt, or you owe me this respect, that's not going to fly. That is nothing more than a cheap trick to try to get control over people through guilt as a manipulating device. And the people who demand respect, you will respect me, stand and chant with me, raise your fist in solidarity with me they're missing out on something very important. And that is you do not demand respect. In fact, uh, anybody who, who comes to me and demands respect um, automatically earns disrespect in return. You know who gets respect? People who command it. And they don't command it by marching up to people and saying, you're going to respect me. They command it by living their lives in such an exemplary way And showing such excellence of character that I am powerless to resist respecting him. The cop who stopped and helped a motorist change a flat tire. I can't help but respect him or her
0: as I'm driving by. Because that's respectful behavior. This is The Brian Hyde Show.